Hello and welcome. Thanks everyone for joining us. Somehow it's the end of August. Brent and I are here to talk a little bit about a few articles we've been writing, a few things we've been thinking about. I guess to kick this off, I'm going to pull up this fertilizer article, Brent, that we just updated. You know, a lot of chatter and conversation about fertilizer prices, a lot of concerns about higher fertilizer expenses. So we broke it down a little bit. First thing I want to point out is a year ago, we were writing articles and talking about how fertilizer prices are at historic lows, or not historic lows, 10-year lows, uh, looking at, at the data. And this has quickly changed in a big degree. We went from lows to, to pretty high highs or pretty high levels. And we've done it in just you know 18 months. So anhydrous ammonia or nitrogen sort of took off very quickly, followed by phosphorus fertilizers. And then here recently, the last few weeks, it's potassium. It's so the entire fertilizer price complex has increased, but it's really the P and K that's been driving a majority of the uptick. It's all of them have gone up, but it's P and K that have increased on a relative basis kind of the most. So it really depends on the time frame you consider as to which is up the most. So we step back and said, okay, what are current prices compared to spring 2021? And what are current prices compared to spring 2020? The phosphorus fertilizer are up 75%. The potash here is up. 70%. So these are up a hundred percent increase would be doubling, right? So these are big changes. And most of the nitrogen fertilizers are up 50%. So big price changes relative to 2020. People are clearly getting a little bit of sticker shock when they uh, start talking to the fertilizer people about next year. And, and I think that is a good point that kind of depends on your comparison point. If you've compared to fall last year, we're up 50% on a lot of it. If you're comparing to spring, it doesn't seem as bad. But at the end of the day, I think it kind of comes back to just how unique 2021 is from an economic perspective. 2021 is kind of a special year in that the cost structure was locked in low and the prices took off. And they did it in a very favorable time frame, particularly, you know, we were talking offline before even rents, you know, and rents probably got negotiated with a lot lower prices than we've seen today. So 2021 is just a year where it's got a lot of potential to make a really, really strong margins. And that's going to probably leave really quickly. Those phosphorus numbers really, I think I've heard a lot of people talking about nitrogen, Less about phosphorus and phosphorus, boy, it's just off the chart higher. So phosphorus is at 10-year highs. The potash is almost at 10-year highs. Meanwhile, anhydrous ammonia is around $700, $750 a ton, which is high. But for context, the 10-year highs are $900 a ton. So it's well off those highs. Of course, fertilizers priced at the product level, what we think about it in the budgets at a sort of a, an aggregate form, you know, we, we apply a fertilizer rate. So here's an example of 180, 70, 70 fertilizer application. Our current estimate of current prices, that's about 160 bucks an acre for that product. That is among the highest that we saw. So 160 was the levels we were at back in 2011, 2012, 2013. And again, nitrogen was considerably higher then than it is now. So this is a little bit of a different makeup of how we got to these high prices. Brent and I were talking earlier, 2011, 12, and 13 was 6 and $7 corn prices with $100 crude oil prices. And now we're sitting around 
5 to $6 corn with 60 to $70 crude prices. And so we haven't seen the nitrogen fertilizers pop as much as, as the rest. Um, I guess, thankfully, right? Because if they were all at their 10-year highs, we'd, we'd be well above this. Again, an acre is where that expense would have been just two years ago. Last fall, it would have been actually closer to $95 an acre. So we've went from 100 to 160 in just two short years. And it took us about five or six years to work this cost lower and then about 18 months to, to push it back up. Last time, you know, 11, 12, 13, pretty much consistent price is about $160 an acre is what this fertilizer bill would have cost a farmer. Didn't start falling until 14 and then reached the bottom and maybe 17 came up a little bit, dropped again at 20, but now I've just shot right back up to those 11, 12 levels and probably have the potential if nitrogen prices were to keep going up to exceed what we saw in 11, 12, and 13. So the cost pressure is coming. And I think it's going to be intense. It's not just going to be fertilizer. It's going to be other things. In fact, I think the biggest one will be the the land rents, but we'll talk about that another day. You mentioned something earlier I want to talk about here is let's not get hyper-focused on just one side of the narrative, right? We have to remember the entire forest here. And so even when you look to 2022, this isn't a doomsday scenario here. There is still potential for economic profits. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. It's 2021's awful unique. 2022's looking to be okay uh, right now. And it's just not going to be quite as big a margins as 2021 for sure. But much better than where we were a year ago, right? When everybody was mm-hmm. looking at, can we get $3 cash prices for our corn, right? So it's all relative to how we think about that. The other article I wanted to mention real quick, I don't spend a whole lot of time, is we took a look at some of these estimates that we see coming out of maybe the, these crop tours and how do they stack up relative to the USDA and USDA estimates of August and September. Of course, we've wrote about this a little bit. Our big takeaways is probably more air out there than what most of us would assume. And there's a bit of an interesting outcome here. Crop tours probably have a little more, they, have, they provide another layer of information that's arguably maybe a little more accurate than the August USDA WASI reports, but that advantage quickly erodes whenever there's this by the September USDA estimates. And so those September estimates really start to tighten in the accuracy. So there could be some new information here, but it uh, has a limited shelf life. The other thing I noted, I didn't really spend a whole lot of time talking about on this is there's a whole lot of correlation amongst these. I mentioned this in the conclusion, the correlation is about 0.90. And so This tells us that in general, that when the USDA errors are significant, so are some of these uh, some of these other estimates, right? And so it's not like we're getting maybe a completely new piece of data. The data are often very similar when it comes to those errors. Take a look at that article; it was uh, worth thinking about and providing some context to. I'll be honest; it surprised me. The crop tour estimates are are better than I thought they would be. In fact, I thought they would probably you know add negative information. But they may provide just a little bit, not not a lot, uh, not a lot better than the USDA reports. As much as people want to argue with them, the pro farmer ones tend to be biased negatively. I think USDA's aren't pro farmer tends to underestimate, so you have to kind of trade that off as maybe a little bit smaller variance better than being biased. At the end of the day, they're they're better than I thought they would be. So I guess I have to admit that. 
Now, I didn't look at the state level estimates because a lot of times state level estimates start to come out of these. Just kind of statistics would tell us the errors could really blow up on those. So we looked at the national level sort of conclusions, which is a very different beast than estimating individual states. So Brent, I guess I didn't tell you about this last ideas that make us better article I want to wrap up with. So I'll kick this off and you can either conclude us with some thoughts on this or anything else that you're thinking about. But we wrote a quick article about mastering the pro con list. You know, this is an idea that we share a lot. And so there's a, a story about Benjamin Franklin that Brent, I'll let you maybe elaborate on. And then there's one that I like from Steve Jobs. The one from Steve Jobs was Bob Iger was the CEO of Disney and he called Steve Jobs in and he said, hey, I want to talk about buying Pixar. This is when Steve Jobs was doing Pixar and back at Apple and Steve Jobs said, okay, you know, let's, let's talk about it. Let's, let's start a pro con list. There's this giant whiteboard, just two of them, and they literally start writing things down on a whiteboard. It gets towards the end of the conversation, and Bob Iger says, wow, you know, I see there's a whole lot of cons on this con list. Steve Jobs was thinking, being very, <laughs> listing all the ways that this would be a failure in, in all of his kind of dramatic ways. And Bob Iger thought, well, this is the writings on the wall, and I'm going to gracefully bow out of this. And Steve said, oh, no, 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 no. He goes, you can't weight these equally. You know, there's a few, a few of these that can really outweigh a whole bunch of bad things. And so that was, I guess why I think a pro con list is valuable. You got to write it down and you got to really look at it and you got to update it as new information becomes available. You know, that whole idea of, of trying to wait things and, but just get the ideas out can be super useful. Putting them on paper is always a pretty powerful way to get it, go about it. And then thinking about, well, the relative kind of reminds me of the whole Annie Duke, how you make decisions what are the possible outcomes that could happen? And then, you know, how likely are they? And what's the big risk? And I, I think it's really helpful that the Ben Franklin one, you know, he, he always talked about that. I thought that was useful. And the, the other story I remember, I think it was uh, Darwin, maybe who used it to decide whether to get married or not. And I can't remember what, how he, what, he, what he ultimately decided. If you do that, I would recommend burning that list. <laughs> Before you get married, <laughs> not sure you'd want your wife, future spouse, to uh, find it if you uh, if you did decide to go forward to get married. <laughs> all their faults and all their benefits, all in yeah. one sheet of paper. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, he came up with the idea of evolution, but uh, I'm not sure he would have lived much longer had his spouse found that list. And I think even thinking back to the Steve Jobs and a Bob Iger conversation, you know, Disney and Pixar coming together kind of seems inevitable to all of us today, but there were some big barriers to preventing that from happening. And making that list gave them a conversation that they could start to actually, you know, where the rubber meets the road, right? They can actually start working through some of these key concerns, but also keeping the, the eye on the ball, right? Keeping the eye on the goal of these are some really big benefits that we can leverage to pull this off really encourage folks to think about the pro con list. We use these a lot in our head, but writing them down can be really powerful. All right. That's all I have for this week. Brent, anything else to add? Nope. I think covers me too. Wish everybody have a good week. All right. We'll catch you all next time. Stay curious. Stay curious.